Hi guys, Lonre and Lisa here. We just wanted to hop in before the show to tell you how much we appreciate your support. It means so much to us, and we'd love to ask you for a small favor. If you could subscribe to our show, rate us, and write a written review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods, we would be forever grateful. And if you know someone who'd enjoy listening, please tell them about it. And of course, follow the Hippocratic hosts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to keep up with all the latest news. Thanks, everyone. You're the best. Now on with the show. Modern life. Between careers, kids, and health, it can be mayhem. That's why we're here. I'm Dr. Lisa Varghese-Kroll. And I'm Dr. Lonre Falusi. We're physicians, moms, and longtime friends who break it all down for you. Wondering how to juggle all the balls and still stay sane? Looking for advice but don't want to be overwhelmed? Curious about how to make the most out of life for your family but enjoy it at the same time? You're in the right place. Welcome to Health and Home with the Hippocratic Hosts. On this episode, we're introducing the first of our new ongoing series on Mothers in Politics. Today, we're talking to Dr. Michelle Al, the author and anesthesiologist who was just elected to Georgia's state Senate. She's telling us how a busy mom with no prior political experience became a state senator, what her goals are for her time in office, and why other moms should consider throwing their hats in the ring. Hey, Lon. Hey, Lisa. We are so excited about this new episode series. So we'll be interviewing mothers in politics, and we'll be including these episodes among our regular episodes every so often. And today we are delighted to talk to someone that you and I have been fans of for a long time. (laughs) It's a bit scary to think how long. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But we first heard of Michelle Al almost 20 years ago, back when she was in medical school, and so were we. She was the author of the very popular comic series, Scut Monkey, which poked fun at the realities of medical training and med student life. And we also followed her hilarious blog, which chronicled her life through training and beginning her family and career. She then published a memoir in 2011 called This Won't Hurt a Bit and Other White Lies, and went back to school to earn her master's in public health from Columbia in 2019, all while working as an anesthesiologist and raising three children. So impressive. (laughs) I know. And then she turned her eye to politics, and this past November was elected to the Georgia State Senate. So we're excited to hear all about that incredible journey, and we're so honored to have her here with us today. All right. So welcome, Michelle. We are so excited to have you on the show, um, especially in a week like this. So we are recording this just a few days after the Georgia vote and after those horrific Capitol riots. So we have to ask, as an incoming Georgia state senator, how are you doing? How are you feeling Hey, guys, thank you so much for having me on the show. And that's really the question of the hour, isn't it, for Georgia? You know, we we woke up on Wednesday morning uh, to the news that John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock had been elected to uh, the U.S. Senate. And it was such a happy feeling because it really was something that was not a foregone conclusion. It was something we really had to work hard for in this state. And it felt so, um, you know, wonderful and hopeful that all this work we put in had paid off. And I feel like we only got to be happy for a few hours because obviously after that we started, you know, scrolling through Twitter and seeing all the stuff with uh, this mob really taking over the Capitol. And it really seems like these radical swings from uh, hope to despair. And um, it really sort of outlines what the political climate looks like in this moment. 
That said, I feel like living in Georgia is a good insulation because we can see that even very entrenched uh, political histories can change over time. Right. And I think it's probably, you know, taken more time even than people appreciate because I feel like people have just certainly like started to notice Georgia in terms of um, the fact that it just flipped blue in the presidential. Mm-hmm. But we who live here know that this has been going on for a long time, right? So having that sense of history and having that sense of change that happens very slowly and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. gives us some hope that even what we're seeing at the Capitol uh, with uh, these Trump supporters uh, can hopefully be attenuated. So, you know, for those of our listeners who might not know you as well as we feel like we do, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your professional background and your family. Sure. Well, I'll just give you, like, the really boring CV points, like when you're, like, giving grand rounds and like, Dr. O, trained in... So I'm an anesthesiologist. I work in metro Atlanta. Um, I went to medical school in New York, where I grew up, uh, at Columbia University, and I stayed on there to actually do two fellow, not two fellowships, two uh, residencies. I started in pediatrics. I did two years of pediatrics, and then I switched to anesthesia, where I finished my um, residency there. Uh, after that, I moved to Atlanta because my husband was starting his fellowship in oculoplastics, and we thought it would be one of those things where we just stay for two years for the fellowship, and then we're like, we're out of there, back to New York. But, you know, it's like how it happens usually or even professionally. Once you find a professional home and you have kids and they right. kind of make roots and it just becomes, you, you look up and it's seven years later and you realize this is your home and this is your yeah. family. And so we've been here for the past 12 years. And I do have three kids also relevant to the topic of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I had my first kid the third week of my anesthesia residency, which is oh not unbelievable. <laughs> oh God, it's not. You know, it's one of those things where, like, I encourage people to live their lives, right? Like, right, you right. Have to, you yeah. have to live your life, but do I recommend that as a specific <laughs> like inflection point? Like, you should have kids the third week of your residency. <laughs> Ideal timing. Don't, like, you barely know where the purpose. bathrooms are in the hospital. But I go ahead and have didn't. a baby. <laughs> and it was the worst time because everyone's on this very steep. You know, like when you start. Absolutely. Uh, the steep learning curve of like where everything is. So I, I went out to have this kid. I, you know, took a five week maternity leave, which is pretty standard, I think, for medicine. It's just five weeks, right? But five weeks is a long time, especially at that point in your residency. Yes. So when I came back, I felt like, oh my God, I'm the worst. I'm so stupid. I don't know anything. Everyone's ahead of me. And especially having come from a different residency where right. I felt very comfortable mm-hmm. and had like this comfort and expertise. And switching residencies and then being out, I was like, oh, my God, I've made the biggest mistake. <laughs> but I guess we all feel like that when we yes, have kids some sometimes. Point, yeah. Yeah. And how old are your kids now? Now they are uh, 15 is my oldest kid. He was the one who was born my third week of residency. I know. He's like, I can't, I can't believe it. I have like an old-ass kid. Very <laughs> interesting. Then I have a kid who just turned 12 a couple of days ago. Oh, wow. So that's super cool. And I have an 8-year-old. So we have Fantastic. like a full spread. Each kid is yeah. exactly three and a half years apart, like almost like oh, wow. precision metric. See, yeah, who says you didn't plan nicely? <laughs> totally, totally spaced out. Yeah, exactly. Amazing, amazing. So you went, you not, you've been a physician, right? You don't have any prior political experience. What spurred you to run for office? Yeah, that's a great question. It's the probably the most common question that people ask me, especially mm-hmm. when I'm at work. Like, you know, when you're in like the anesthesia lounge and you're just kind of chatting, people are like, "Why? Why are you doing this?" And they're not asking in a way like, "Oh, it's so great." Like they're not saying like they're just like, "Why are you insane? Like why would you do this?" Is your life not hard enough? I know. Well, I think I dissect the question a little bit, and I think it's partially because our jobs are very rewarding and it's mm-hmm. very. Um, well delineated in terms of like, here's a problem, 
we're going to fix it, and at the end of the day, we've at least gotten a little bit closer to a solution. So it's mm-hmm. very rewarding in that way, and you can see it right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Whereas politics, um, I think most people perceive it to be, and it's probably accurate, that it's a very frustrating endeavor, that there's a lot of, like, talking and posturing and all these kinds of things that we really don't like in medicine because it doesn't get the job done. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you still haven't done anything. So people mm-hmm. are like, why would you possibly put yourself through this when you have a good job, Right. So I think like the the long answer or the medium answer I guess is that after a, after November of uh, 2016, like the next morning, November 9th, I woke up and um, saw the election results from that from that situation, and I realized kind of had this moment where you realize that whatever you've been doing, as much as you've been working and all the good you think you're doing, it, it wasn't um, enough, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, it wasn't enough to affect the kind of change I thought we needed to achieve as a you know as a country. So what I did at that time was I actually went back to school to get a master's in public health. Mm-hmm. And that's because of two reasons. Is One, like you know, like I said, I used to be a pediatrician, so I did kind of miss that element of um, community-based health and preventative health and mm. all those types of things that pediatricians get to concentrate on more, whereas anesthesia, you're much more zoomed in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I missed that, and I thought that that would be a good way to learn how to affect more change and to use the doctory side of me to affect more um, population-based and community-based health. Of course, when you get a master's in public health, you actually end up learning a lot about like healthcare policy, okay. healthcare economics, healthcare law, you know, all those things that are like these bigger subjects and it, it like fills out the superstructure of the system that we work in, which is the healthcare system. And you kind of realize like, oh, that's why things don't work, or like that's why that's mm-hmm. the way it is. And you know, it's almost like this realization that um, there's this invisible structure that you've been working inside and never mm-hmm. really appreciated. So once you kind of realize that, you realize that the way to affect that kind of change is actually to get involved at the legislative level um, and do that kind of top-down change and to help write that kind of healthcare policy to affect, you know, our patients, essentially. And it yeah. also happened that my state senator was not running for a re-election, so that was a nice opening for, for a <laughs> yeah. newbie, you know, to not have to run against an incumbent. Right. So yeah, right. it was a good sign. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fascinating. And I think the other part of that that's interesting is that you have talked and written in the past about your parents and how you're proud to be a first-generation Chinese-American. And Lonra and I are also first-generation. So how has that experience factored into the person you are today, both personally and professionally, and also in the sense that, you know, you didn't necessarily come from a political dynasty that could give you all their connections? Yeah, my parents are not the Kennedys. I know it's surprising. <laughs> look at my face. It's like, it's just like JFK. But, you know, but you're right. It's not something that I'd seen before. It's definitely not the family business. My family business actually is medicine. Both of my parents are doctors. So, you know, this was like a, an abrupt right. veering off of like the standard thing, you know. So, I mean, obviously, if you ever told me when I was a kid or a teenager that I'd ever run for office, I would have told you that you were insane, right? <laughs> and it's not the fact that, you know, my parents never said you can't do it or never, no one ever told me, like, this is not for you. But it's just not something you see modeled, right? And right. It's not something mm-hmm. you see yep. as part of your regular life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's really, honestly, very few examples publicly of Asian American uh, political leaders. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. are slowly becoming more now, but it's still, um, you know, a little bit of a novelty act, right? So you don't necessarily mm-hmm. see that as a, an option for you even if it's not an active, uh, you know, disengagement. Um, you it's know, like I mean, that you guys, saying, like, it's hard, yeah. it's hard to be what you can't see. Right. Yeah, that's right? exactly It wouldn't even right. come to mind. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, you know, you guys said, you know, you grew up in immigrant families also. And, you know, not to generalize, but, you know, obviously I grew up in Manhattan in New York City. So almost every single friend I had was also in an immigrant family. And I think there's a sense in lots of our families that the important thing above all is to sort of 
work hard and achieve excellence mm-hmm. so that your mm-hmm. kids can achieve right. that like image mm-hmm. of what the American dream is that our parents moved here mm-hmm. to give us, mm-hmm. right? Um, so the goal is to be part of that American success story, but a lot of that, especially for you know like Asian immigrants and people, have the stereotype because it's a, a little bit true <laughs> that a lot of that is like becoming a doctor or becoming a lawyer mm. or going to finance these types of like very narrow parameters of what success mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. right? But what's more American than becoming part of this uniquely American political process? Hmm. Right? Agreed. So the parents have come come around to that, even though they were kind of like, what, what, <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you doing? Yeah. And, you know, as a medical candidate in specific, and I say this because there may be other listeners uh, to this podcast who are who are thinking about this, because I think we're seeing Hopefully, more examples now yeah. right. of science people, medical people, women running mm-hmm. for office. I also had that special advantage, since I am a doctor, of being able to engage with uh, medical and mm-hmm. patient advocacy groups mm-hmm. more easily. And I've talked to other politicians who aren't doctors, and they say it's very hard to get in with these groups because they won't take your call. And, you know, and doctors... We don't like to like pick up our cell phone if we don't know the number. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, we don't have our cell phones publicized, so it's just like mm-hmm. harder to reach docs. But I was able to do it because they'll pick up for me because you know they know me. Right. So I got a lot of support from the Medical Association of Georgia, mm-hmm. American Society of Anesthesiologists, all the national groups, ACOG, mm-hmm. the uh, OBGYN group, yeah. and lots of state-level medical societies who understand why it's important to get more docs yeah. into the legislature to make all these things that affect our patients. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, riding along with that, which is wonderful, what are those issues that are most important to you? Well, you know, there's a number of issues that I personally want to focus on. And actually, I don't know if you followed my campaign at the very end, but I put out like a series of like a 12 video series of like my sort of like key issues. 12 is a lot to talk about, right? (laughs) But if I want to pick like three to Mm -hmm. concentrate on like just right out of the gate, and I mean right out of the gate because we're starting session on Monday. So I'm just like, oh, it's happening. (laughs) First day of school. (laughs) A little bit nervous. I don't know where to go. barely know where the bathroom is. But here's what I want to like concentrate on right off, and I think I'm maybe suited to do this. First, I really want to concentrate on the state of Georgia's uh, COVID response. Everything from our approach to like pandemic mitigation, like we're still having arguments about like mask wearing and distancing. Mm-hmm. And this is still a thing down here, mm-hmm. you know, because it's not been like a state level, you know, mask mandate. Right. Mm-hmm. To testing capability, which has always lagged a bit. And I've actually been in conversation now since I've been elected with the uh, Commissioner of Public Health on how we can improve our approach in the state and really ramp up our vaccine delivery efforts because it has been, I think we've seen this nationally very balkanized, like our approach Mm -hmm. to uh, how we're rolling it out. Mm -hmm. And it's like Mm -hmm. the federal government punted it down to the states and the states are punting it down to the counties and the counties are like, we don't even have any staff to do like the basic things. Like we're in a pandemic and now you want us to do this whole other crazy giant thing, you know? (laughs) So that kind of stuff I think needs some some thinking, you know, and obviously hand in hand with this on the other side, um, not just from the medical point of view, but, you know, economic relief for Georgians who have been hit by the pandemic Mm -hmm. or have their livelihoods constrained by this. I mean, we've seen patients talk about this all the time, losing their health insurance because mm-hmm. the restaurant closed or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, lack of childcare, loss of unemployment benefits, all these types of things. Again, should be a federal issue, but it seems like we're kind of dithering with that and they're kind of distracted now, I guess. So just mm-hmm. had to get some relief to families who live here. Uh, the second thing is improving healthcare access. Georgia is one of the 12 states who hasn't expanded Medicaid under right. the ACA yet. Mm-hmm. And that's really been, it was bad before the pandemic and it's super bad now, right? Because mm-hmm. all these people who are not covered and now are left high and dry because mm-hmm. they just don't have any way to access medical care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the final thing that's probably uh, relevant to you guys' practice is um, decreasing Georgia's maternal and infant mortality rate, mm-hmm. which really ranks among the worst in the nation. And that, that could be improved also by really 
allowing the ACA to do what it's designed to do, mm-hmm. which Georgia's fought for, you know, more than the past 10 years. But maybe right. now that we're in this situation, we can kind of see the wisdom of just taking the help we're being offered. Yeah, yeah. How, how high of a barrier do you think you'll meet with that? How likely do you think you'll be able to get that done? I think I think it's going to be hard. Like, I'm going to be honest. I don't have, like... This isn't going to be an easy fix. I mean, because this this uh, approach has been available to us for more than a decade. I'm fairly sure the governor has, uh, you know, he campaigned on being anti-ACA. He d- campaigned against Medicaid expansion explicitly. Um, Democrats are in the minority in the House and the Senate, and we have a Republican governor. So it's a, it's an uphill battle, right? But I'm hoping that given all the economic turmoil and all the budget shortfalls, that people will at least see the financial wisdom of accepting back the federal tax dollars we've already paid Mm -hmm. instead of letting it go to other Mm -hmm. states to pay for their Medicaid expansion, that we could take it back because it's our money. Like, it literally belongs to us, and they're turning it away in the middle of this huge budget shortfall Mm -hmm. where we're cutting billions of dollars from the state budget when people need it. So, you know, we'll see. So you got through this entire campaign with at least 12 major issues that you (laughs) wanted to address. You know, just not a whole lot, right? Yeah, pretty easy. Um, And then you won. So what did it feel like to win? (laughs) Winning felt incredible. (laughs) And I don't don't mean it felt incredible just for me as an individual, though obviously it does feel good to win, and I'm glad that I did. But I think that part of it also is seeing what it meant for us as a state. Yes. And it sort of leads back to what we talked about at the beginning is seeing that change happening finally mm-hmm. in real time, right? Like seeing that all the work that everyone's been putting in is finally delivering and that the results are visible now, right? The General Assembly's only Democratic physician and the first Asian-American woman in the state Senate. So that's an Bravo. incredible change in a short amount of time. Yes. So to see that, and you're just like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm part of this. Like, this is, this is crazy, but it feels good. <laughs> that is so incredible. I think something that uh, is amazing to hear about. And having gone through that, this whole process, these last year or two um, of this, is there anything surprising that you've learned about yourself? Yeah, you know, I, I think I worried when I started running especially that because of being a doctor and all that background, I'd be really bad at all the things that make people uh, good mm-hmm. at politics, right? Like, for instance, I did have good success in fundraising, but I've always been very uncomfortable with mm-hmm. it because it's mm-hmm. like calling people and asking them for mm-hmm. money and talking about money, and that's just not what doctors do. Like, we don't we don't talk about that with our patients. Right. We don't talk about right. that with each other, right? It's just like, that's not, <laughs> no, no, we're above that kind of stuff, you know? Right. I was worried about like maybe not understanding the issues or the language as well as people who've really been living in this world for a longer time. Because I, you know, I haven't done it before. I don't come from that background. And I don't come from an occupation that sort of more naturally translates into running for office, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's a reason mm-hmm. that so many politicians went to law school, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. they, they get that, you know, language and the lingo and all this stuff you have to learn. Just like when you start med school and you're like, what are all these acronyms? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you saying? But um, I think one thing I realized that was a unique advantage of being a doctor and doing this is that we've been really well trained on connecting with people yeah. in a very deep way very quickly. Mm-hmm. Right? It's something you forget that we've learned to yeah. do because it's so natural now right. that we just do it, right? But, um, you know, literally, like, I'm an anesthesia, right? So literally, I meet people for the first time ever 
like 15 minutes before surgery, let's say. Yeah. And that's all the amount of time I have to get to know them, get them comfortable with me and mm -hmm. say, you're going to trust me with your life now. Right. And they mm -hmm. feel okay with that. So I think that's actually a great uh, skill that is harder to learn if you don't do what we do. That's such a great point. Yeah, that is. <laughs> that is. You're right. You know, and whether you're in an anesthesiologist or you're in office-based practice or in the hospital, you're absolutely right. You have to be able to walk into a room and make that connection, have people feel comfortable with you. And that's what you want in a person who's representing you in, you know, in your state too. So that's, it's really great. So we're getting, you're able to kind of use that skill that I don't know that a lot of people would have thought about. So, you know, we, we talked about this earlier. So we first heard about you when we were medical students at the same time that you were in medical school and you started a blog with really hilarious takes <laughs> on medical school. Um, and then you wrote a memoir in which you discuss, among other topics, what it's like to have not one, but two full-time jobs as a parent and as a physician. Um, and I think, you know, that's something that a lot of people can relate to, including people who are not in medicine, of course. So what's your perspective now on work-life balance or work-life integration, especially now as you're embarking on this new career? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that part of it, well, you know, with the book, I, I was happy to write it because I feel like that's a really under-discussed topic, especially in medicine. Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes women in medicine who have kids, especially um, a little bit younger, like during residency, feel a little bit stigmatized mm -hmm. for making those choices and there's always a lot of guilt that comes with it because you know doctors will just keep on working until they you know drop dead drop dead like, yes. right. let anyone exactly. down and like they're gonna think less mm -hmm. of me if i don't give it my all or like they're gonna think i'm shirking work you know mm -hmm. so i think that even just discussing it like i don't have solutions to everything but i think even just bringing it out in the open is probably mm. helpful for some people yes yeah. i hope it is with this new, you know, addition of this incredibly different and new career, how, how are you planning to split your time? Will you continue to practice? Will you do both? I do plan to continue to practice. And that's really one of the great things about uh, running for state senate in the state of Georgia is that ours is a citizen legislature, which is designed to be a part-time job. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it, it allows you, I think that's, that's by design. Like, they actually mm -hmm. wanted the people who are serving to continue to, like, be people in the community and not be professional politicians because that's probably pretty important right because yeah. you kind of keep your foot and feet on the ground so how the georgia constitution has it is that the legislative session which starts this monday runs uh, 40 working days per year so usually and, you know it doesn't run every single day but it'll run like usually between january through march okay you know sprinkled okay. in there so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a leave of absence from my clinical job because I don't know, actually know what the schedule is yet. Even mm -hmm. though it starts on Monday, they still haven't given us the schedule. I'm like, how do you live like this? It's so, so crazy. I'm used to having my call schedule like a right, quarter in right, advance. Right. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing on Tuesday. Like, But then after the session, um, I'll just go back to the hospital and continue my work there. The one caveat is this is a redistricting year, as you guys probably learned oh, about yeah. because of the census that they're going to redraw mm -hmm. the congressional map. So there will have to be a special session probably sometime in the summer is our guess. Again, we don't know Okay. Um, to, to do that, but um, I'll toggle between the two and, you know. And, and your employer has been supportive. They have. I talked to them about it before I decided to run. Actually, okay. that was one of the first conversations mm -hmm. I have is like, I'm thinking about doing this. This would entail me not being here for some period of time. Are you OK with this? And if you're not OK with it, then I won't run. Okay. Right, because I mm -hmm. want to be a doctor and I want my job. <laughs> also, I get paid to do it. So, you yeah. know, kind of need that. But uh, they were like, yeah, cool. They were like, you know, go ahead and run. And if you win, we'll deal with it. That's fantastic. You know? That's great. Yeah, good about it. Oh, that's yeah. so great. 
Uh, and so you mentioned some of your um, the main issues that you had when you were campaigning. So mm-hmm. once Monday comes, whatever the schedule looks like, <laughs> what are some of your other like overarching goals for your time in office? Yeah. So we talked about some of the legislative priorities, but I actually don't have any like hard goals as such yet, because I really want to see how things work mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. the session is going to look like and how how things fit together and how they play out. I suspect it's probably going to be um, a little more complicated to achieve the objectives I talked about than it might seem from the outside, particularly, like I said, as a member of the minority party, mm-hmm. that you know you can want to do a lot of things, but there's a whole lot of steps in between that. But I think so. I think my goal and what I've told myself overall is just my goal is to be as useful as possible in this moment and be able to lend my skills and the expertise that I in particular bring to the table to just help as many people as I can. And that's that's the goal. Fantastic. I I think that's inspiring. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, knowing that that that's your overarching goal, why do you think that it's important for mothers and or physicians uh, you know, to seek elected office, as you have done. Like, why do you hope that more will join you? I do hope more will join me, and people should feel free after this podcast, if they want to contact me, that we can maybe put my email in the Absolutely, we'll put it in the show notes, sure. yep. Mm-hmm. If people need uh, very, like, granular advice on, on how to do this. I think that when you assemble a team of people for any task, it's really important to have a diversity and a wealth of experience at the table, mm-hmm. right? Like, when you... Uh, build a hospital, you don't just have all cardiologists in it, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You need people who are good at different things and bring different types of information and expertise to the table. Um, Because if you just know two things, then it's a very shallow talent pool, even if everyone is really good at that one thing, right? Mm -hmm. It limits your ability to um, solve different problems, first of all. And probably more importantly, the thing we think about less is that it limits your ability to even see what the problems are Mm -hmm. if you're very narrow in your focus, right? So obviously, I think it's never been more obvious than right now that we need more voices with expertise in medicine Mm -hmm. and public health at the table. And that's probably been why it's been very difficult to get things going. And we in medicine and people in the public health field see the state of, you know, Mm -hmm. the COVID response and be like, what are they doing? And it's like, (laughs) they just, you know, they need more people who have this experience. Mm -hmm. They're helping to to decide, uh, you know, to make those decisions. You know, honestly, it's, I get it. I get why people don't, run for office. Um, You know, we're very busy doing very good work already. Mm -hmm. Um, Patient care is very satisfying, and um, it's what we've trained our whole lives to do. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I get it. It's a sacrifice to step away from my patients and my clinical work to serve in office, right? Uh, But I think once you get to a certain point in your career, and I'm about a little more than 10 years out of residency at this point, you, you do feel that desire to sort of volunteer your time and your experience, not necessarily doing this, but other forms of public service mm-hmm. so we can mm-hmm. be more useful. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, more parents seeking elected office would be beneficial as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. As for the importance of parents, and maybe moms in particular, I think we do an incredible disservice to our communities to not have people bring the issues to the table that parents really understand best, mm-hmm. right? And like I said, it's like, it's the ability to see what the problems mm-hmm. are. And, uh, you know, not just um, not just things like uh, subsidized childcare, universal pre-K, uh, reproductive health care, paid family leave, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. elder care, pay equity. When these things fall by the wayside, uh, women and moms in particular shoulder the societal right. load for that, 
right? Right. So to ensure that we're paying attention to these really important issues, we need to make sure that people whose viewpoints reflect the community at large mm-hmm. are represented at every level. So that's why I think it's important to have parents and moms in particular at the table. Completely agree. That's great. You're, and it's so true. You can't address the inequities if you can't even see them. Right. Yep. And you can't see them if the people who are experiencing them aren't at the table or don't have a voice. So mm-hmm. so huge kudos to you for making <laughs> that leap. It, it, as you said, it's not easy and not one that a lot of people maybe would feel really comfortable and confident doing, but you have done it. And you are a Yay. model. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. I'm excited, a little bit nervous. You know, it does, it does feel like going to med school all over again because it's mm. like, you know, when you get into med school, you're like, I did it. And you're like, yeah. so happy. And you're like, get your old white coat. And you're like, I'm so ready to go. But then you're like, what am I doing? You know, like, you're just like how, how do I do this? Right. right. And it's just part of, right. part of that process. <laughs> you know, just circling back, what do you feel like uh, were the best and the most difficult things about campaigning, about going through the campaign process? I think one of the most difficult things, I'll start with the, the bad thing first, or the <laughs> difficult thing is really I'm, I'm a pretty big introvert, right? So when I was uh, campaigning, particularly in the beginning, sort of like pre-COVID times, when it was all in person, I really found it really exhausting, mm-hmm. honestly. And I think it's okay to say that because I think people should know that not all politicians are extroverts because I think mm-hmm. that's sort of, that's at least the image that I had of it is that everyone's like, I love people. <laughs> right, I right. party and like chat everyone up. Kissing babies <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. And I think I heard on a podcast that um, Stacey Abrams did with Claire Malone, who's on the 538 podcast, that Stacey also talked about how she's an introvert and she obviously you would never be able to tell from how tall no. she is and how like great of a public speaker she is but she said after she did those events she would have to like just be quiet for an hour alone (laughs) and just kind of like be cool and that her staff knew that they would like give her her alone time because she needs to like recharge so it's so great hearing that from her especially because she's so like you know we all look up to her see different types of people can do this you don't have to be like the social butterfly you don't have to be ted kennedy to to do this or like george w bush who's always like hey brownie you know like yeah yeah <laughs> right. So so I found that hard, especially, you know, when it was the physical thing of having to drive in the evenings, like this event and then that event and your kids are at home and you just worked all day mm-hmm. and you're like, I'm not even going to see them until tomorrow. It's the same kind of like medical parent mm-hmm. guilt, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm putting all this time. What is it for? Is it worth it? You know, obviously it is worth it, but, it, you know, we should not discount that that is hard. That's you know, right. We should talk about that. Um, the best thing about running was... Uh, I don't know. I guess it was winning. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) That it pays off, you know, that the work you put in is worth something. Absolutely. Well, we (laughs) cannot wait to see what you'll be able to do once you, you know, again, figure out where the bathrooms are in the building on your first day. I think um, I found one bathroom, but it, it didn't need. have soap in it. And I was like, you guys, come on. Soap in your bathroom. Oh, my goodness. Oh, thank you so much for your time. Thank and as you, you said, you are really an inspiration. Mm-hmm. And we hope that people really take your words to heart and consider being involved in politics in some way. As you said, you know, as physicians, we have a, a lens that we are very privileged to have. And making that impact on that higher level is just incredible. I look forward to it. And thank you so much, guys, for inviting me. I love talking to other doctors because you guys kind of get it. You can skip over a lot of the explainy stuff, which is awesome. (laughs) Thank you. It was our pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope that you were as inspired by Michelle as we were. As always, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hippocratic Hosts. 
rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you like what you hear, we just would love it if you share our podcast with a friend. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Health at Home with the Hippocratic Hosts. Remember that all views expressed here are our own, not our employers, and all content is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical advice nor the establishment of a doctor-patient relationship. Always consult your own physician or healthcare team for any medical issues. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us, subscribe, and tell a friend. And check out our website at www.hippocratichosts.com for show notes on this and all our episodes. Can't wait to chat with you next time.